from the National Society of Genetic Counselors, this is the NSGC podcast series. Exploring stories of leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. Welcome to the 2022 season of the NSGC podcast series. I'm your host, Naomi Wagner. Before we get started today, I want to introduce you to this season's new subcommittee members. This year, returning podcast subcommittee members, Ryan Kuhl, Mary Pat Bland, and I are joined by two new voices, Leanne Jimmins and Jessica Dronin. You may remember Leanne as a speaker in the August 2021 episode on sickle cell disease education. We're excited to have her on the other side of the mic this year, and we're excited to welcome Jessica to the podcast. Stay tuned to hear from Leanne and Jessica later this year. Today, I'm excited to share with you a special episode highlighting both patient and genetic counselor perspectives. Since February is American Heart Month, a time to focus on and learn about cardiovascular health, today's topic is cardiogenetics. Our speakers are especially passionate about CPR awareness, as well as the importance of knowing about family history and heart health. In addition, our speakers all provide important stories and reflections that can help guide genetic counselors or patients as we navigate tough diagnoses and next steps. We hope this episode will deepen our listeners' understanding of the personal and family impacts of cardiovascular conditions and inspire action toward prevention and awareness. Our speakers today include three patients and patient advocates and one genetic counselor. Of note, we will refer to our patient speakers by first name only for their privacy. In the first half of this episode, you'll hear from family members Rebecca and Abby. Rebecca is a survivor of sudden cardiac arrest experienced at age 45 and a CPR advocate. Rebecca's daughter, Abby, was a bystander to her mother's sudden cardiac arrest when she was 13. Abby herself is an ongoing cardiac patient being monitored for possible heritable cardiac arrhythmia disorder, and she is also a CPR advocate. I'll turn it over to Mary Pat Bland, who is interviewing Rebecca and Abby. Hi, this is Mary Pat, and I'm here today with Rebecca and Abby. Thanks to you both so much for being here. It is rare that we have families impacted by genetic conditions directly on the podcast, and I don't know that we've ever had a high schooler, so thank you both for being here. I'm wondering if you could start us off by introducing yourself and sharing your cardiogenetic story with us. My name is Rebecca, and I am a survivor of sudden cardiac arrest. And the reason that I had my arrest is that I have an underlying genetic condition that is a mutation of a gene in the structure of my heart that predisposes me to cardiac arrhythmias. And one day that arrhythmia reared its head and my heart suddenly stopped when I was with my then 13-year-old, now 16-year-old daughter, Abby. Hi, I'm Abby. I'm 16 now, but when I was 13, I saw my mother experience her cardiac arrest, the hard part. But our story is at at the same time when I was scared for my mom, I was also scared for myself. Not that long after my mom left the hospital, my sister and I also had to get tested for this FLMC gene. We came back negative, but also had some confusing news. I wore a Holter monitor for four days while we were waiting for the genetic test results. Those results showed one arrhythmia. Even though my genetic test was negative, we did a second round of testing just to be sure. The second round of tests came back negative too. It remains confusing to the doctors, so now I get monitored a few times a year to make sure that they don't see any changes in my heart. That is a lot. 
Rebecca, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what happened that day and what it was like when you left the hospital. I'll back it up just a little bit by saying that when I experienced my son cardiac arrest, my heart was stopped for 15 minutes. And I had, I think it was eight shocks from an AED before my heart got restarted. And so I actually don't remember the 48 hours before my arrest happened. And my arrest was severe enough that they put me into a hypothermic coma when they were able to restart my heart and get me to the hospital. And so I was in a coma for about four days before I even had any consciousness, let alone left the hospital. So I had quite a journey. I barely remember the process of waking up, but I do know that I was only slightly less confused than you can imagine that I might have been because I knew before my arrest happened only a few weeks prior had learned that I had this genetic mutation that put me at risk for arrhythmias and potentially cardiac arrest. It was um, a little bit of a crazy time from that time where I regained consciousness to the time that I actually was discharged. It was very hectic around the time that I got discharged. And it actually wasn't particularly informational, I guess. There was a lot of just nuts and bolts of how to get me discharged. I had six broken ribs from some pretty vigorous CPR, thank goodness. I had a split tongue because I had actually bit it while (laughs) I went down. I had aspiration pneumonia that was posing a real issue for me breathing. So those were actually some of the biggest concerns. What's really odd about the discharge process is that it didn't focus a lot on what my road ahead would really be. It was almost as if I had had a car accident and I was in the ICU for just this single episode and that I was recovering and, and would recover from. What was really sort of lost in the shuffle were all these pieces about exactly what this meant for me going forward. The only really forward-looking part is that I did get an ICD placed in my chest, which was explained to me to keep me safe in the event that I unlikely ever had another arrhythmia event again. That was my advanced planning. But other than that, I was discharged. They did a mental health status exam on me before I left the hospital, which I remember basically being unable to complete. (laughs) And yet, even despite all of that, I was released to home because I was... 45 years old at the time, had a healthy body otherwise. And what I had wrong with my heart was an electrical issue and not one that required rehab or any kind of specific intervention. I'm wondering what it was like to share that story then. So what happened to me happened in a public place. I was really lucky that it happened in a public place because that's why I'm still here today. So by the time I woke up, I didn't have to share my story. My story had spread pretty quickly. Yeah, everyone knew. Everyone in our community, I feel like, (laughs) knew, knew me or knew someone who knew me. And so that felt in some ways very exposing, but at the other hand, also it meant that people supported us, which was really great. My cardiac arrest happened in October, 2019. And like knock on wood that it happened then and not six months later, so that we were in a place where people could support us. But it was difficult because I really learned through this process, how little people I think in the general public know about the heart. And it was a hard thing to explain to people. Genetics, people certainly don't understand the genetic risk factors and what does it mean to get genetically tested and know that you're at risk. And did you know that this was going to happen? No, I didn't. But honestly, we encountered, I think both of us, Abby. Yeah. Uh, Kids don't know. 
much anything about it either. Adults either. Or they thought I'd had a heart attack. How did I I not know? Was I unhealthy? Had I done something that in some way contributed to my own risk factors? And that was really hard at times to debunk a lot of people's misinformation about what sudden cardiac arrest is and what my journey forward was going to be. And the fact that now multiple members of my family actually have this mutation, which we've learned through our genetic counseling and testing and screening journey. What does that mean for us? And what kind of life should I feel comfortable leading? And should people who are around us be worried all the time? Sure. So just touching on that a little bit more, the genetic counseling, can you talk more about kind of what prompted that in your family, how that impacted kind of knowing about this? And if there's anything that was surprising to you about genetic counseling? Yeah, our story oddly goes back about 20 years almost. So I have an uncle who had a heart condition and it reared its head one day as him riding his bike with his then really young sons and having an arrhythmia that was so severe it landed him in the hospital. And they found that he had what's called dilated cardiomyopathy, which means that a part of his heart muscle was dilated and expanded. And it's sort of a chicken and the egg thing where they didn't know what caused it. So they sort of thought, hey, he just has a structural problem with his heart. It's just a him thing. And it's going to be a difficult course ahead for him. But for a long time, we as a family supported him in his individual journey through this heart issue. And then through time, his dilation got worse and worse, and he actually needed to have a heart transplant. And his then young sons were now in high school. And one of his two sons, while he was in that process of getting his heart transplant, actually experienced an arrhythmia himself and ended up having a pacemaker slash ICD implanted. And the doctor stood back from this and said, well, this is really odd for two members of the family to have similar-ish arrhythmias. Let's look and see if there's a genetic cause. And lo and behold, they found that they shared this really rare genetic mutation that not very many people have been identified to have. They knew enough to know that it's a dominant mutation, which means that my mother, my uncle's only sister, had a 50% chance of having it. So pretty quickly, she got tested, found out that she was positive, which put my sister and I both in harm's way. We both had 50% chance of having the mutation as well. So I went through that genetic counseling process and it was pretty clear in my mind that I needed to be tested. So I didn't require that much counseling. So at the outset, not that much about it really surprised me. I knew that I was at risk. I knew that my uncle had a very serious condition. I needed to know whether or not I was in that same risk category. And so I went down that path pretty quickly of having the testing done. And the only part about the whole situation that really was surprising is how close in time discovering that I had this otherwise completely shocking mutation in my body to the point where it reared its head and caused my heart to arrest. That's really the shocking part of this whole story. The timing is just uncanny. Why did I live with something for 45 years in my body? And then I find out it's there and less than three weeks later, it causes my heart to stop. I will never understand that. What's been also interesting through this process has been just how invested my genetic counselor has been in my aftercare. So I actually wasn't admitted to the hospital where she works, but after my discharge, my care since then has been back through the team that diagnosed me. And so that's where my relationship really stands. And my genetic counselor has been a part of me learning how to unpack 
this genetic burden that I now know I carry and understanding how to live with it and what to do with the information. Abby, you shared a little bit going through genetic testing too. I'm curious right now if there's anything that you found surprising about the genetic counseling process. I don't remember too much about it because it was a while ago and it was a very fast paced process. But I do remember that my genetic counselor worked closely with a psychologist who was an expert in managing kids who were going through similar um, things like I did. She was able to break things down for me and make me feel more in control during the process. And that really helped a lot. Yeah, Abby actually got some really cool care at Boston Children's Hospital. Her team worked really closely together. So she had her cardiologist working hand in hand with her genetic counselor and also hand in hand with a psychologist who's an expert in working with kids who have these kind of genetically inherited anomalies. So her care team wrapped their arms around her. And I think it was hard for you to know necessarily who was giving you what information, but it, it came in a really supportive way. It did. Yes. I'm curious, Abby, what role going through this whole process plays in your life right now? If it is something that you share mostly with family and friends, or if you find sharing it with people as you beat them or what that's like for you now. Yeah. So like when the cardiac arrest happened with my mom, many of my close friends and acquaintances knew what had happened, but not the specific details, but they did not know that I was going through a heart journey of my own. So as I've gotten to know new people in high school, it's definitely been a challenge for me to know what I should share with my close friends. Last year, I gave a TED talk on CPR training and awareness and shared the story about what happened to my mom. And I posted about it up on social media on like the anniversary of her cardiac arrest and just shared a little bit of information. But I've not talked to many people about my heart journey because it's been confusing for me to unpack. So getting the words to explain it to my friends in a way that will make sense to them who have no exposure to these kinds of topics can be tough. But over time, I'm getting to be more open about it. Sounds like you're doing amazing. Is there one particular thing that you wish all high schoolers would learn about heart health? CPR. Uh, It's pretty simple. I mean, it's easy to find. Yeah, I mean, Massachusetts is one of only a few states that doesn't require it. And it's not hard to learn at all. At my private school outside of Boston, they offered CPR training like once or twice a year on like random parent-teacher conference days. Yes, it, it was available, but it was not widely available. Not many people attended. It was like 10 to 20 kids. And now even due to COVID, they're not doing it anymore. So it sounds like one of the things that you think would make a big difference is for all high schoolers as a graduation requirement yes. to have to learn CPR. Yes. And I talked to my friends about this and one person in my friend group knew how to do CPR. Like, that should not be a thing. We're sophomores in high school at this point, like didn't even know the basics. I would bet you many of your friends now know it. Thanks to you. Thank you. We're trying. Rebecca, you mentioned previously your family is very comfortable with medical terminology and scientific terminology. I'm curious, given all the parts of your journey and how complex it is, if you have any suggestions for families that may not be as comfortable Yeah. So our family's pretty unusual. My husband's a physician. My father is a physician. My mother-in-law, father-in-law, brother-in-law, sister-in-law, all physicians. (laughs) I joke at times I'm not a physician, but I could play one on TV. I have a biology degree and actually had a concentration in genetics. So I'm pretty comfortable talking about and researching in this area. Not that it was easy for me after my cardiac arrest to 
dig into it. First of all, like I said, I did have cognitive issues and emotionally it was hard at times to dig in, but I knew that I had that competency to use and rely on. So I can only imagine how scary it is when you just have someone speaking at you and it it just sounds like another language. I think that the advice that I would give is first of all, feel comfortable asking questions of your provider. Don't feel ashamed of that. Your doctor is your partner in your health and asking good, intelligent questions is something you're entitled to do. It's your body. You're in partnership with your doctor. So always ask questions and make sure that you get the information that you need to feel that you know what your health condition is. With that said, there is so much research out there. It is for many people something to do to go and Google your health condition. I would love to say that that is going to make you feel better, but many times it can feel overwhelming and pretty disheartening, no pun intended. So I'd say check your sources, make sure that what you're looking at is valid, strong research and evidence-based material, reputable sources, in particular sites that are sponsored by the federal government, such as the NIH, the National Institute of Health, Medline Plus, PubMed, sites that are good peer-reviewed material that you can feel confident that you're getting unbiased, accurate information from is super key. And I know this is going to sound a little bit weird, but one other tip that I would give to people is there is a place for social media in all of this. Connecting with peers that have traveled the road that you're traveling in can be very helpful and chip away at that feeling of isolation that you've been handed this diagnosis and you don't know anyone else with it. So I'll tell one story that I think exemplifies this for me. I had a lot of fear after I left the hospital that I had this device in me that could shock me and what was that going to be like? I don't remember my original arrest. Thank goodness. And I wasn't sure if I would know what was going on if I ever experienced another arrhythmia and my device went off. My sister and I were doing some research and we came across these two sisters like us that also had a different genetic mutation that predisposes them to an arrhythmia. And one of them was a dancer and she had posted some video footage of her dancing on stage when her ICD went off and someone had caught that amazing footage and I was able to see her dancing being shocked and still standing afterwards. My sister was really reluctant to watch that video. And I said to her, watch it. It's it's really empowering because I think we're both afraid what it's going to be like. And if she's still standing afterwards, it can't be that bad. Well, no sooner did I have that conversation with my sister. Within an hour afterwards, my device went off for the first time. And again, it was in a really public place. And I remained really calm. And it's something that I can only attribute to the fact that I had seen somebody else go through what I was anticipating. And I knew she was okay. And then I was going to be okay. So there's this place in your research also for the human story and anecdotes that you have to balance that with some good information from your providers and evidence-based medicine, but to connect with others who've gone through it can be really helpful. I would say that's the very reason I think it's so kind and helpful for you to share your story today. And you too, Abby. Thank you. I know you've gotten involved in advocacy work. Rebecca, can you speak a little bit more about that? Sure. I think knowing that I had this amazing outcome and that I really can't explain how I'm still here, that I had to make sense of it by figuring out a way to harness it for good because very few people 
have the outcome that I had. That's the part that was actually the biggest shock to me in all this. I knew a lot about how the heart worked. I knew a lot about genetics and genetic testing. What I didn't know is how few people survive a sudden cardiac arrest that happens outside of a hospital like mine. Nationwide, it's like 10% in Massachusetts area is actually a little bit lower. I was lucky, like really, really lucky. The number or percentage of people that survive with cognitive functions intact is even smaller. So I'm one of a tiny percentage points of success stories here. And to not make something of that felt like I was not finding the silver lining to this experience. So I knew pretty early on that I needed to find a way to pay this forward. And it's been a journey. I will say that I don't have so many tips because I'm still trying to learn how I want to harness this. There aren't that many patient advocacy groups, at least in my area. So I've been tapping into our local chapter of the American Heart Association, and I've been working with my genetic counselor and also a few physicians that I've targeted who have a lot of work that they've already undertaken in this area. And we're all trying together to figure out how to make a dent and how to improve these numbers. Because despite the fact that resuscitative sciences have improved a lot in the last 20 years, the survival chances for someone who's experiencing an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest really hasn't improved. It's stayed really constant. And that frustrates me. Dig in, I guess, is the best that I can offer. Look around, see what is operating in your area. And we're trying to figure out how to leverage all of our interests and bring this message and make more change. Any suggestions for genetic counselors or anyone else that may be listening to the podcast that want to brush up on their CPR? The American Heart Association has an amazing website where they can point you towards places in your area that offer training courses. And for the average layperson, they offer a course that's about a two-hour course, and you can do it in a combined hybrid and in-person way. So you do the learning part at home, and then you show up to a test site to do the actual hands-on piece. And it's a pretty easy skill to get your hands around. But I think what Abby and I are both struck by is that a lot of people may have at some point in their past heard about CPR and be aware of it, but they just don't feel comfortable putting their hands on somebody else. And for those folks, I would say it might be enough just to go on the AHA website and see that they have some very easy videos on teaching hands-only CPR. I think that many of us who are older, maybe not Abby's generation, learned a version of CPR in the past where there was an elaborate combination of breathing and compressions. And now the gold standard that is asked of lay people is just hands-only. So you can learn how to do that pretty easily by watching some videos online. All you have to know is what, Abby? What do you have to do? Staying alive. Push to the beat of staying alive. (laughs) Or for those who don't know staying alive, we learned Baby Shark actually has the same cadence. So that that one can be used too. So you got to push hard and fast to Baby Shark. Um, Right across the middle of the chest. Yeah. And my only other request is anyone who's thinking about this area, think about also learning about how to use an AED. Most of them talk to you, so they're really easy to use as long as you're willing to grab it and open it. I think a lot of people are scared of being shocked. It won't shock you, and it won't shock the victim unless it needs to. So it's the two. It's the CPR and the AED, and that's how people like me are here to tell their story. Well, we so appreciate both of you being brave enough to share that with our audience today. Is there anything else in NAS today that you feel like is important to offer? 
I just feel like kids should know more. The future generation, we will be able to help and we need to learn. Even if it's not required in school, which it should be. Literally take a little bit of time to watch a five minute video. It's not that much time. How about you, Rebecca? Any last words or any last thoughts? My plea is for people to take a little bit of time. We, I think, have learned through this COVID epidemic how important public health is and how we all have to work together to keep each other safe. I think that we've all felt out of control through a lot of this. And to me, CPR is just like a tiny little thing that you can do to take some control. And if you know the skill, you can save a life so easily just with your own two hands. Well, thank you both so much again. We really appreciate having you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca and Abby, for sharing your story. We so appreciate your insights and willingness to share and reflect with the genetic counseling community and beyond. Next, I will speak with genetic counselor Nadine Chenawi and another patient and advocate, Teresa. Nadine is a cardiovascular genetic counselor at Brigham and Women's Hospital, as well as a course instructor through the Boston University Genetic Counseling Program, Institute of Health Professions Genetic Counseling Program, and Massachusetts School of Pharmacy and Health Professions. Teresa is a surviving sibling of an eldest brother who passed away from sudden cardiac arrest in May 2020. She is now an advocate for CPR and AED awareness and genetic heart conditions. Welcome, Nadine and Teresa. It's great to have you here. Thanks. Great to be on. Thank you so much. To start, could you each share a bit of background about why each of you are involved in advocacy related to cardiovascular health, CPR, and cardiogenetics? Sure, I can start. So two years ago, my oldest brother had passed away from sudden cardiac arrest. He'd been working out at home on a treadmill and he passed out and was pronounced dead shortly after when the paramedics arrived. That will be two years this May. The coroner concluded after that event that he died from a hereditary heart condition and that all of our siblings should get checked immediately. So I was lucky to locate the experts at Mass General Brigham. After I went through extensive testing, it was recommended that I undergo genetic testing. So based on some abnormalities that they found in my heart, I tested positive for the FLNC gene mutation. And my deceased brother and mother later tested positive as well. So this past October, I had what's called a subcutaneous cardiac defibrillator implanted on my left side in case I have any dangerous arrhythmias that could cause my heart to stop. So I advocate for cardiovascular health, CPR, and cardiogenetics, really in honor of my late brother and my family. Yeah, I think that I have heard many stories like Teresa's. And for me, being involved in this advocacy work is very much patient-driven. I have actually myself been certified in CPR and AED since I was 16. And I never really thought about how many bystanders might not step in or might not feel competent to step in during an emergency cardiac situation. I had heard from a cardiologist I work with that one prior patient of mine, Rebecca, was interested in CPR and AED awareness. And so I reached out to her and when I heard more about her story and kind of the disappointment and disbelief that there was about how cardiac arrest that happens out of the hospital is not super successfully handled in Massachusetts, I really felt 
this pretty intense connection to the topic. And I just think that there are so many people and families that I'm talking to daily who are in situations where they're living with a risk of sudden cardiac arrest or being a bystander to cardiac arrest. And it felt almost like this light was shed on, oh, I'm just leaving them out in this environment that's fatal that doesn't actually have to be fatal. And so I just felt like I really needed to get involved and use my abilities and networks and strengths as a genetic counselor and, and also just being a leader in different capacities. And so I just started putting together some meeting plans and structures got a network of similarly motivated people together and just gradually kept going. Thanks for sharing the important work you're both doing. So Teresa, I know you mentioned that in your family, you learned that there is a genetic mutation increasing the risk of cardiovascular disease. Can you comment on what it felt like to learn about that genetic risk? Absolutely. Sure. So when I first initially found out about this risk, I have to be honest, there was a lot of confusion, but also some type of like shame or like, you know, inside where I felt like, does that mean I'm a mutant or is there something wrong with me? (laughs) So I had to work through that and really realize that this is just like any other condition that folks have. And the good news is that there's something that I could do about it. And so the doctors at Mass General Brigham really helped me walk through that. And I'm so lucky to have found all those experts, including Nadine. Thanks for sharing that. I know that that terminology of a mutation or genetic variant can be an added hurdle to families as they're, they're trying to seek out care and process what that means that they might be different or have something different in their DNA as well as processing grief. So thanks for sharing that and helping normalize that we all have various health and risk factors. And the important thing is learning as much as we can about prevention. I wanted to ask Teresa about the beginning for her, because as you alluded, you entered into this advocacy space from a really tough family scenario. And I know often patients and families, they learn about cardiovascular health risks during a time of grieving or a really tough time for their family. So I'm wondering any tips for people who are trying to take next steps or dive into their family health history during a time of grieving. Absolutely. So I'm one of six siblings, including my late brother. So as you can imagine, everyone was going through a different process during that time. And so I think the biggest tip would be that it's important to respect family members' grief process and to kind of meet them where they're at. And through that, I think it's helpful to talk to other folks outside of your family who might have a more objective insight or view of the situation. So I did a lot of talking with my husband and to gain kind of an additional insight on how that to approach various conversations with family members. I think that's the biggest tip that was helpful for me just to navigate all those difficult conversations with family. Sometimes you just need to hold off on certain conversations too and just wait for a better time when it's more appropriate. I'm curious too, Nadine, from your perspective as a healthcare provider, do you have any tips for genetic counselors who are working with individuals and families during that time period? I think as genetic counselors, especially in the clinical setting, most of the time our experiences with our patients are pretty short and might even just be one encounter. So first and foremost, I think it's just important to recognize and be realistic about how much we can alleviate grief when we are with someone as a new and unfamiliar and often not a recurrent presence in their life. With that 
said, I do like to ask in sessions, frankly, clearly not beating around the bush. How are they doing with these major events that are happening in their life? And I'll ask if they have enough support around them, if there are any additional supports that I might be able to help locate. And then kind of based off their response, I can go from there. So if if they're brief in their response, then we usually don't stick with the topic of grief for much longer, if at all. If they get emotional or convey that their needs aren't really being met, then I do lend some sort of in the moment support and weigh out what kind of resources might be helpful. And if I say that I'm going to look for a resource or try to find one or or give them contact information, I follow through with that. I guess aside from the pointed questioning, I'm just really trying to pay attention to subtle cues from the patient that might let me know how much they're willing to open up, how they speak about their loved ones, what seems to be motivating them to get up and keep going. And then I kind of ask myself, do I have a role in any of that? Are they talking about a hobby that they love that I also love? And can we connect on that? Are they describing a desire to acknowledge their loved one with humor or positivity? And can I reflect that back? Are they yearning for some sort of network that I have access to as a genetic counselor? And I think it's really that type of listening that's the best guide because it allows whatever your patient says to be your guide. And it allows you to also show up as yourself and really being authentic company to someone, whether they're grieving or not, is a pretty special service that we get to do as genetic counselors. Thanks for that. I think a lot of our genetic counselors will take something away from that perspective. And I like how you spoke to examples of both individual and family and and potentially larger community levels of support. And it might vary for the individual what areas of support are most needed. I'm curious for you, Teresa, what did that look like to you on personal, family, or community levels? What types of support did you need and where have you put your advocacy efforts? For the personal level, it was just advocating for my own health, right? And asking questions to be informed because my brother just dropped dead and that doesn't just happen. And then you just move on, just finding out that there's potentially a hereditary risk. I needed to sort of follow it through to the end to find out what overall our risk was. And certainly didn't want that to happen again in the family and have another tragedy where somebody else was suffering from cardiac arrest. And for the community, it's just about getting involved and building a community where people are empowered to help save a life if they can, or if they're in the situation where they need to. I think knowledge is power and empowerment to jump to action and do those things. That's something that I think we need to develop in the community and that my brother would be honored to hear that I'm doing, right? So it's all about just continuing to honor his name and to to use that tragedy in a positive way. As a follow-up, how did you find a language to talk about these things with family members or your own providers or your community? A lot of people are not experts in cardiovascular health or genetics, and sounds like you have tried to advocate on a number of levels, both for yourself, your family, and others in this new space. So what was useful to you, or how did you find your voice in this space? I think the best thing that I did was after I found out that I was positive for this gene mutation, I was sort of in the process and meeting with Nadine and she provided a lot of information and just 
such a great resource for me to ask questions and find out more and be able to really understand it better. And then from there, I I had my older sister actually ended up testing negative for it. So we talked through the process of sharing this information with the extended family. We have a really big family, uh, not only here in the States, but also in Canada. So she actually was sort of like the messenger. So she said she would handle those conversations and it took a huge weight off of my shoulders, especially like trying to sort through things and what that meant for me and what my plans would be going forward to handle this news. Also leaning on the advocacy group that I'm a part of with Nadine and learning more from members of the team on how they handled the situation and what best worked for them, I thought was just overall very helpful in dealing with and communicating the message to family. I know you mentioned this has all happened within the past couple of years, which we know has also been the timing of a global pandemic. I'm curious how that has impacted your own motivation and advocacy efforts. And how has that been for you and your family, this timing of the event? It certainly did impact my processing of all this. I think I had some big ideas of having the whole family over and doing CPR training and just getting everyone together. And and that's sort of been something I have not been able to do. And, And I look forward to doing that once the pandemic is over. I'm hearing from a lot of Teresa's responses is how much emotional and intellectual effort goes in after receiving this information about family and a test result and how many people there are to talk to and things to do when you find out new health or family information. I'm curious because lots of genetic counselors spend time with their patients before genetic testing, talking pre-test. And Nadine, I'm curious at what point in the genetic testing journey, do you feel that patients tend to need the most support? And do you think that our current or traditional genetic counseling models are set up to provide that necessary support? With most things that are patient-oriented, everyone is so different in what their needs are and where along the genetic testing journey they might benefit from a genetic counselor the most or certain support. And so I'm sure that for some people, the pre-test arena is quite stressful, takes a long time to decide. There's a lot of different variables to consider. So for some people, I think our current model, which I do think is very pre-test heavy in terms of emphasis and, and where we feel an ethical responsibility to provide informed consent, you know, I think it works for some people. And yet I also think it's really skewed in the traditional clinical genetic counseling model and not just genetic counseling, just genetic testing in general. Most of the emphasis is on the pre-test support and education specifically. We often don't even get to hear that much about the patient after we have shared the results with them. And I would imagine that major life events that are connected to the genetic test result would be times when people could benefit from support of all sorts of different kinds. And we just don't always hear about them. We don't hear if someone has had a cardiac arrest or if a family member died. I have tried to talk a little more about family communication and that obstacle and that challenge for many of our patients. And I have tried to incorporate that more in pre-test and post-test results 
conversations because I do think that's something where genetic counselors could be supportive and and give some resources or just talk through ideas. Aside from that, I don't think our current model allows very much space or opportunity for us to know and step in in ways that might actually be really uniquely beneficial to certain people. You know, we have a very unique skill set and we have knowledge about these conditions and knowledge about certain forms of support. And that's pretty unique in terms of someone who does go through a major life event. They might not have that type of resource around them. And yet we don't really have a way of getting connected to them unless they reach out to us. Yeah. I'm wondering if you have any recommendations for how genetic counselors or maybe a future model of genetic counseling might be able to create space or opportunities to better connect with patients or families after their results to check in and provide that support. I wish I had a really good answer for that. I think it's more of a systemic structural change that would need to happen where genetic counselors are given compensation that's equal to pre-test counseling when providing post-test support, conversation, education. Right now, that's not where our assets are identified within the hospital system usually. Usually it's like, Genetic counselors can do pretest counseling and get other family members to come to the hospital for pretest counseling too, and, and different sorts of prevention and screening. I think it's a little bit beyond genetic counselors creating a system for ourselves. I mean, when you have time and ability to check in with certain patients, especially ones who you built rapport with in a more in-depth way, like that's amazing and, and wonderful if you get the opportunity to do that. But also that it's not really all on us to figure out, hey, how do we flip this model and how do we tailor this to patients in a more unique way? I think it does need to come from policy level and health insurance companies giving some more coverage to post-test counseling. And then maybe eventually the models will shift so that return visits are more structured and embedded. What do you think about the role of patient and family advocacy organizations in this? Is that a space where right now in our current model, are those groups helping fill that gap? Or is there a long way to go for these advocacy groups making contact with patients as well? I have not taken part in many patient advocacy groups firsthand. And I give that caveat because what I imagine is that they're under-resourced. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but to rely on patient advocacy organizations to provide medical literature, support, connection, research opportunities, that seems like a lot to ask of often volunteer-based groups. I think another thing is that often we're working with rare conditions as genetic counselors, and there might be one advocacy group for a certain condition, if there even exists one. And every organization and group has its own dynamics within it. Someone may or may not actually feel like they're a fit or that they're feeling included, or that there's diversity representation, or that they are really getting their needs met. So in general, I don't think that we should be relying on advocacy and patient organizations to fill in gaps that we recognize most people would benefit from. They're wonderful, and I give them so much credit for everything they do, but it's it's too big an ask. 
for both of you, I'm curious, what is something that you wish healthcare providers, such as genetic counselors or other providers knew about individuals and families with inherited cardiovascular concerns? So I thought about this one a lot. I think it's overall just increased awareness and knowledge of these types of conditions. My brother, a year and a half before he passed out the second time when he died, passed out at the gym. He underwent all these tests and they found that he might've just been dehydrated at that point and they sent him home. And then there was no follow-up after that point. So increased awareness and knowledge of these conditions for the general public so that we can then know that these are out there and then make some informed decisions. I think that would be helpful overall in my situation. And I guess I think about healthcare providers kind of like myself in that we typically are somewhat trained in CPR, if not incredibly trained in how to handle cardiac arrest. We often are working in medical settings where if an incident like that occurred, people would be well taken care of. And so I feel like we actually need to just widen our perspective of what might be going on for someone who has an inherited cardiovascular condition. First of all, for them to know that is a huge feat to figure out by itself. And I think that speaks to what Teresa was saying about just increased knowledge and education so that the diagnostic process doesn't take as long or involve so many tragedies. But once it is known that they have an inherited cardiovascular condition, I think CPR preparedness or AED preparedness, conversations about that can occur in multiple avenues because it can also feel alarming to hear for the first time that you might want to consider having an AED in your home. But if they hear it from lots of providers, I think at some point it might feel less burdensome or or less shocking. So I just remember that these are people walking around who aren't always in the medical setting like we are and what we can provide in that setting and how can they be best taken care of so that they don't find themselves in situations where, you know, a real loss could be prevented or a horrible arrest or something to that extent. I think that is a good point that healthcare providers are the ones who might know more about these things than anyone else. So I think another follow-up question is thinking more about the lay public. What is something you wish everybody knew about cardiovascular health or prevention? In hindsight, I think I wish I knew more about my family health history. And I wish I was able to have more candid conversations openly with family about just overall heart health and health in general while my brother was alive. And so that we could have maybe prevented this. After this tragedy, we found out that my grandfather, my mother's dad, he passed away. We were always told from a gunshot wound, but it was actually a weak heart. And he did have a gunshot wound from the war, but it was a weak heart. And we didn't find that out until after this tragic event. So I just think about all those things. And just overall, I would encourage people to ask those difficult questions and start being curious, I guess, about overall heart health in the family. The first thing that comes to mind for what I wish that everyone knew about cardiovascular health and prevention would be that no CPR is bad CPR. I've never personally witnessed a cardiac arrest event in front of me, and I can imagine that it would be alarming and it would take some really quick thinking. Someone could die and you intervening is not going to make that outcome worse. (laughs) 
it is something that can happen. And if everyone actually knew that they could intervene and they could potentially help, I think we'd actually save a lot of lives. So that's the first thing, giving people permission and empowerment to intervene. And it can be hands only and that can save someone's life as well. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice, I think. And we'll include information in the notes of this episode too, about how people can learn more about CPR as well. Is there anything else before we finish up that I didn't ask about or either of you wanted to share? Oh, just really happy to be a part of the podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you both so much for your time and sharing your stories and your thoughts with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That concludes this month's episode of the NSGC podcast series. To learn more about Heart Month and to find information about CPR classes, check out www.heart.org. These conversations inspired me to update my CPR training, and I hope you consider doing the same. Thank you for listening. We can't wait to spend another year in your podcast feeds exploring leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. As I mentioned at the end of the last episode, we would love to hear from you, our listeners, about what you would like to hear on the podcast this year. Please check out the link in the episode notes for a quick listener survey if you'd like to share your feedback with the team. This recording is produced by the National Society of Genetic Counselors. I'm your host, Naomi Wagner, and we'll see you next time.